for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to God's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by uh, fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. Well, morning everyone. Uh, If you're visiting here, happen to be visiting here because you're on holidays on the uh, long weekend, it's great to have you with us. Uh, As Will said, we're going through the book of Colossians and uh, this morning we're looking at Paul's model of gospel ministry. Uh, But before we look at that, uh, how about uh, I pray that God would help us to understand. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in speaking to us uh, and and having those words written down so that we can read them and know them and understand them. And Father, we ask that as we hear your words explained this morning that you would help us to believe you and to trust you and to put our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from error and guide us into all truth and your Holy Spirit would be at work powerfully in our hearts and minds so that we might receive your words written by your Spirit about your Son. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This week uh, someone sent me a helpful list uh, of top ten things that uh, people desire in a pastor. Now the top ten were love of the congregation, effective preaching, strong character, good work ethic, casts a vision. I love that. I always uh, think of casting a vision. You know, casting a vision. Uh, Casts a vision, demonstrates healthy leadership, joyous does not yield to critics, transparent, models evangelism. It's a thought-provoking list, isn't it, uh, to think about what good ministry is uh, and it's a helpful thing to think about, uh, uh, to think about what good ministry looks like. Uh, There's a few reasons, I think, why that's important. One is so that we can see it when it's in front of us. What is good ministry? You know, uh, when good ministry is there, we ought to be able to recognise it for what it is. 
It's also helpful to think about what good ministry looks like so that we can recognise bad ministry. And it's useful to know what good ministry looks like so that we can do ministry ourselves. You might not think that uh, you need to do ministry but uh, every Christian uh, is involved and ought to be involved in ministry in one uh, shape or form. The word ministry is just uh, the word for service and all Christians are to be servants, serving God, serving God's people, serving the world. Ministry isn't just what pastors do and it's not just what you do when your name is on a church roster. Every day presents hundreds of opportunities for each of us to be involved in gospel ministry in one shape or form. And here in this passage in Colossians chapter 1 and 2, Paul gives us his model of ministry. He gives us his top four. He doesn't give us the top ten, but he gives us the top four uh, characteristics of authentic gospel ministry. Now there's lots more you can say about gospel ministry but these are, I think, uh, some of Paul's top four characteristics. Well, what's the first one? The first characteristic of Paul's ministry is suffering uh, and indeed joy in suffering. So he begins in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Why does Paul rejoice? He rejoices because he's suffering for these Colossian Christians. He wants these Colossians to know. Isn't that interesting? He says in the first verse of chapter 2, I want you to know how much I'm suffering for you. He wants them to see uh, what his model of ministry looks like. In fact, Paul says that his uh, suffering somehow is filling up what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? What does he mean by filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? It sounds at first as though Paul might be saying that Jesus' suffering on the cross was somehow inadequate or incomplete, that there was something more that was necessary. But Paul makes it pretty clear in the rest of Colossians that, Paul's, that Christ's work on the cross Christ's reconciling and redeeming work is 100%. It's, it's totally effective. It's all that's needed. So what is Paul saying? It helps to know uh, that that word which he uses, afflictions, is a word which is never used to describe Jesus' work on the cross. So Jesus' work on the cross is never described as a series of afflictions and maybe uh, if we translate it using the word tribulation that might help a little bit. Uh, it's a word which is used throughout the New Testament to describe the persecution and the trouble that the world faces between uh, Jesus' ascension and his return to judge the living and the dead. So you might think of uh, Matthew chapter 24. There Jesus speaks about the great tribulation. Uh, you get the same language in Revelation as well and, uh, and even in the Old Testament. This this period of tribulation between when Christ ascends and when Christ returns. So what Paul seems to be saying is that there remains suffering to be endured by Jesus and his church. And, and what Paul is doing then is he's kind of soaking that up, he's kind of throwing himself into it. 
Not because he's a sucker for punishment, but because he wants to do ministry. And that's the cost of doing ministry. What's more, Paul's ministry involved suffering and struggle, even though God was at work powerfully in him. So look at verse 28. He says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Dick Lucas, uh, who uh, is an English pastor, makes a profound point when he writes about this passage. He says that we tend to be preoccupied with feeling powerful. So when we engage in ministry and service uh, for the sake of the gospel, uh, what interests us, what preoccupies us is whether we feel like God is using us powerfully at the moment. Do I feel like I'm powerfully equipped for this ministry? But actually, Paul doesn't talk about that at all. Dick Lucas points out uh, that for Paul, there's no sense that he felt God's strength surging within him. What did God powerfully working in Paul feel like? It felt like struggle and labour and toil. It was a fight. Paul writes to these Colossian Christians and he says to them, I want you to know how much I'm struggling to do this gospel ministry, how painful it is. The reality is that all of us are involved in one way or another in gospel ministry, or we ought to be. We ought to be engaged in service of Jesus Christ and his body, the church. But here's the catch, here's the problem. The problem is that is deeply painful and involves profound suffering. Every act of service, every act of ministry will be hard because love in a fallen world is hard and costly. Just ask Jesus how much it costs to love the church. Showing the love of God to your children is a struggle because it requires unimaginable patience. Teaching the Bible to your children and disciplining your children and discipling your children involves suffering because it's such hard work. It's relentless. It goes on for years and years and years and years. It's much easier not to do it, isn't it? It's much easier just to send the kids to bed early rather than to try and teach the Bible, try and teach them about Jesus. Sharing the gospel with people uh, involves suffering because they might never speak to you again. They may end your friendship. If you invite them over for dinner, at the very least, it might make the rest of the evening a little bit awkward. Challenging a brother or sister in Christ about a sin in their life involves suffering. It can involve emotional anguish. It might ruin your friendship for the next 10 years. 
walking beside a new Christian as they come to understand the gospel more and more clearly as they fight the sins in their life, as they seek to repent and to change and to be transformed in the power of God. Walking with them as they go through that, that's hard work. Year in, year out, day in, day out. It's hard work. It involves suffering, it involves pain. My non-biblical motto for this year, it's the first year I've had a non-biblical motto, but someone uh, I know uh, has that and I thought it might be a good idea. My non-biblical motto for this year is no cross, no crown. And I need to tell myself that every day. Every day I wake up I need to say to myself, no cross, no crown. Because if I don't tell myself that every day, I'll end up with an ineffective, comfortable ministry. And it's the same for all of us, isn't it? We need to remind ourselves every single day that true gospel ministry is hard work. No cross, no crown. Paul says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what was still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. So that's the first mark of gospel ministry, suffering. But if that's the first mark, then the second mark is suffering for the sake of gospel proclamation. Why suffer? What's the point of it? Paul writes, I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what was lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. I have become its servant, that is the church's servant, by the commission God gave me. Why? To present to you the word of God in all its fullness. What's the purpose of suffering? Is purpose an end in itself? No, it isn't. The purpose of Paul's suffering was in order that he might present the word of God in all its fullness. Paul says, I fill up in my flesh the suffering so that you might be filled with the word of God. There's a kind of a, a transaction going on here. Paul suffers, they hear the word of God. Understand uh, then that suffering itself isn't inherently virtuous. Suffering uh, can be worthwhile for a number of reasons. It can be worthwhile because God uses it to train us, to refine us, to transform us. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. What he has in mind here is suffering which provides opportunities for gospel witness. Paul fills himself up so that they might be filled with God's words. You might suffer all kinds of things. You might suffer uh, a sore toe. Uh, you might suffer uh, ill health of all kinds of different forms. You might uh, lose your job. You might uh, suffer a, a breakdown within your family. You can suffer all kinds of things. Those things aren't intrinsically uh, uh, useful for gospel ministry. We can transform them into things which are useful for gospel ministry. What Paul is talking about is suffering embraced in order to provide opportunity for the growth of the church and the knowledge of Christ. 
That kind of suffering is a source of great joy. It's the same with suffering in our life which God used to ref- uses to refine us. It's because it does something useful in God's power that we rejoice. And when suffering embraced provides opportunity for gospel ministry, it's a source of great joy. So Paul says uh, that, he, that, uh, that the first mark of gospel ministry is suffering. The second mark is suffering for the sake of uh, of, uh, of preaching the word of God uh, in all its fullness. But what is the word of God in all its fullness? What, uh, what's Paul understand that to be? Uh, he explains uh, what his answer to that is in verse 26. He says that the word of God in all its fullness is the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has made known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, my sister was telling me recently that uh, her two girls love to ask questions. Uh, one of them is five and the other is, uh, is six, I think that's right. And... Um, they love, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty bright kids and so they love to think about things and they love to find out things. Uh, and so most of the time, uh, my sister Tanya, she has a bit of a go at explaining stuff. But every now and again they ask a really tricky question. Uh, so I think that one of the latest ones was, Mum, what's electricity? Uh, and my sister told me that she's taken to, to answering those questions. It's a little bit mysterious, you know. Mum, what's electricity? It's a bit mysterious. Uh, and, and, and they just say, oh, well, okay. Is that what Paul means when he says the mystery of the gospel? It's a bit mysterious. It's a bit hard to explain. It's a bit unfathomable. It's a bit beyond us. Is that what it means by the mystery of the gospel? Well, the word uh, mystery is a relatively common word in the New Testament. Uh, it occurs, uh, occurs uh, about 30 times. And it always has a, a very particular meaning. Uh, in the New Testament, the word mystery refers to something that was hidden but has now been revealed. And that's what Paul says here, isn't it? He says that the mystery of the gospel is something that was hidden but has now been revealed. What was that mystery, once hidden, now revealed? Well, Paul gives two answers. You might have Uh, picked up on those. The first is in verse 27. He says, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What's the mystery of the gospel? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery of the gospel? It's Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Old Testament believers knew that God would provide a perfect sacrifice for sins. They could see that. It was played out every day in the sacrificial system. But who could have foreseen that substitute would be God's son come in the flesh? The Old Testament believers knew that God would send a human king to reign over them. But who could have foreseen that that would have been God himself? living and breathing on our earth, in our world. 
The Old Testament believers knew that God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But who could have, who could have foreseen that the great lengths and the depths of God's love as, as shown to us so profoundly in Jesus' death on the cross? The Old Testament believers knew that their great hope one day was to dwell with God and to be with God forever. But who could have ever imagined that the hope of glory would be Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit? Here then is the mystery that was once obscure and shadowy but but now has been revealed. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says in verse 28, we proclaim him, that's the message that he proclaims, Jesus Christ. Gospel ministry involves suffering and involves suffering for the sake of gospel proclamation but most important of all, gospel ministry proclaims Christ. That might seem like a really obvious thing to say and yet the tragic reality is that it's so easy to leave that behind. It's amazing, I think, the pressure to to move away from that, to to say something else instead. It's not that Jesus is all that we ever say, all that we ever talk about. There's great wisdom and riches, isn't there, in Christ? That's what Paul says. But Jesus needs to be front and centre it's, it's much too easy to, proclaim, to not proclaim Christ and instead to, to proclaim rules and laws and regulations and uh, to not proclaim Christ and instead to, uh, to proclaim civil rights issues or, or make political statements. It's too easy to not proclaim Christ and to instead just give suggestions or advice or tips for self-improvement. We so easily reduce the message of the Bible that we teach our children to something like we need to love God, which is true, or even we need to love Christ, which is true as well. But we forget to tell them that actually the thing that we need most of all is to die and be raised with Christ. Over the holidays I read a provocative book by a guy named Michael Horton. The book was called uh, Christless Christianity. And in that book, uh, Michael Horton gets to the heart of the danger that faces us day in, day out. He writes, We come to church, it seems, less to be transformed by the good news than to celebrate our own transformation and to receive fresh marching orders for transforming ourselves and our world. Rather than being swept into God's new world, we come to church to find out how we can make God relevant to the real world that the New Testament identifies as the one that's actually fading away. He goes on later, God isn't denied but trivialised. Christ is a source of empowerment but is he widely regarded as the source of redemption for the powerless? He helps the morally sensitive to become better but does he save the ungodly, even Christians? He heals broken lives but does he raise those who are dead in trespasses and sins? Does Christ come merely to improve our existence in Adam or to end it, sweeping us into his new creation? Is Christianity all about spiritual and moral makeovers or about death and resurrection, radical judgement and radical grace? And he quotes a little later from another author. 
He says, lacking confidence in the power of our story, that is the gospel, lacking confidence in the power of the gospel to the effect, uh, to affect that of which it speaks, to evoke a new people out of nothing, our communication loses its nerve. Nothing is said that couldn't be heard elsewhere. Unable to preach Christ and him crucified, we preach humanity and it improved. Profound, isn't it? It's so subtle. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to shift from it being about Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he is doing through uh, his spirit in us in the present day. It's so easy to move from that and to make it about what we need to do, about wisdom for life, about moral transformation. But we need to hear Jesus Christ and him crucified and not just what you might call the Christ of history. We don't just need to hear about the Christ of history who died and was, and, and was raised to life. We also need to hear about what Paul calls Christ in us. We need to present to people the powerful personal presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, didn't live and die 2,000 years ago just to leave us to fend for ourselves today. As he says in the Gospel of John, he comes and makes his home in us with his Father through the Spirit. Paul calls Christ in us the hope of glory. And so it is. It's a powerful presence of Christ in us which transforms us and remoulds us, which brings love and kindness and joy and peace and patience, which brings the knowledge and the love of God. I've said it before but I'll say it again. The gospel isn't just a historical reality. It is a historical reality but it's also an existential reality. It affects our existence here and now. If we don't teach our children the historical Christ, we lose the cross. We lose forgiveness of sins. We lose atonement. We lose resurrection from the dead. We lose the vindication of of Jesus Christ. We lose the triumph over Satan. But if we don't teach our children that Jesus makes his home in us through the Holy Spirit, then Christianity becomes a, a barren, lifeless religion. It becomes an impersonal affair about things which happened 2,000 years ago which have no impact on the present day. But Christianity isn't just about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's about how what happened 2,000 years ago intersects with our life today through the presence of God in the Holy Spirit. So gospel ministry involves suffering. It involves suffering for the sake of gospel proclamation. Gospel ministry proclaims Christ. And last of all, gospel ministry aims for the perfection of believers. In verse 28 Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. And again in in, uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, he says that the aim of his ministry is fullness and completeness. He writes, 
My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Why? So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they might know the mystery of God, namely Christ. What is the purpose of Paul's ministry? It's that the Colossians might be encouraged and united in love in order that they might fully understand and know Christ, so that they might be perfect in Christ. Some translations have the word mature, but, the, but it's a word which is tied up uh, so often in the Bible with perfection. Uh, you might think of the blameless sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's more than maturity. Paul is, what Paul is doing is he's looking ahead to the, to the great day when Jesus returns and he's saying, what I want to see on that day is, is, is you people presented before God in, in all the perfection which Jesus Christ brings. He's looking ahead to the end of time when, when Christ brings that perfection. And we stand before God holy in Christ. And what Paul is saying is, I'm looking ahead to that and I'm, and I'm working with all my might to bring that about now. I can't do it. It's God's power which works in me so powerfully to transform you. But I'm giving myself to that task. I'm doing what I can. I'm offering myself up to God to be his servant so that through me God can achieve what he's promised to do. Paul looks ahead to the great aim, perfect in Christ, and he labours with all his might to work as God's servant to that end here and now. Here's the aim of gospel ministry, to present everyone perfect in Christ. Just as it's all too easy to lose sight of the fact that the proclamation of Jesus is at the heart of the gospel ministry, so also it's easy to lose sight of the fact that perfection in Christ is the goal of gospel ministry. You see, the goal of gospel ministry isn't just that people get saved. The goal of gospel ministry uh, isn't just that people find forgiveness for sins uh, or a peaceful conscience or joy or that people become more moral or that they become nice people. The ultimate goal of the gospel is perfection in Jesus Christ and nothing less. Paul calls it elsewhere, Christ being fully formed in you. That's the goal, nothing less. As you teach the gospel to your children, to your parents, to your husband or your wife, to your friends, to the people in your growth groups, to the Sunday school children, to the youth group, to the church, to the people at your work, to the people you play footy with. As you teach the gospel to those people, the goal is nothing less than perfection in Jesus Christ. The goal is that they might know Christ and be like Christ by his power. Now no one will ever reach that goal this side of life, uh, this side of Jesus' return. Uh, this side of Jesus' return we all remain imperfect people. But that just means that the goal of gospel ministry is a lifelong goal, isn't it? It's like being a parent. Uh, you know, parenting never ends. You never get rid of your kids. They always keep coming back. 
feel sorry for my poor parents. They got rid of me 13 years ago from home but they keep travelling all over the country to help me move and to repaint people's bedrooms and you know, doing whatever else it is. And gospel ministry is the same. It never ends. It's a lifelong goal. It's a lifelong ministry. Well, if you've uh, given your life to Jesus and you trust in him and uh, you want to serve him, then what should be the shape of your service? What should your day-to-day life, your day-to-day pursuit of gospel ministry look like? Well, it should involve suffering. It should involve suffering for the sake of proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus Christ for the sake of the perfection of God's people at the last day. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you have saved us from sin and redeemed us, bought us, freed us from slavery through the death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that we, many of us, have benefited from the gospel ministry of others in our lives, Lord, whether it's parents or pastors or friends or teachers, even our own children. Lord, thank you that you have prepared others to minister to us so that we might hear the gospel and believe in Jesus and be saved. Lord, help us to, in light of what you've done, to be eager for ministry ourselves, to build up others, to share the gospel with people for the first time. And yet, Lord, we want to confess that we're timid people. Lord, we're afraid of the cost and the difficulty And Lord, while we might embrace the cost one day, the next day it seems much too hard and we'd rather give it all away. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ who gave up his life so that we might live. And we ask, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you might enable us to do the same, that we might give up our lives for the sake of gospel ministry to our children, to our friends, to our families, to our work colleagues, to the people in our street, to the people in our Sunday schools, in our youth groups, to the people that we speak with in church. Lord, enable us to embrace the suffering of your church, that your church might be presented at the last day perfect in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.